been a very distracting week for me. I tell you that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I pray that you'll have a little bit more patience with my sermon this morning if it's not quite as tight together and flows maybe as I might hope it to be. Also, I offer that to you because uh, uh, what's been a distraction to me really explains a lot of the motif that I've taken this morning. And, and I'm not, I haven't taken this motif this morning to, to depress you in any way, shape, or form, but it's for ways that really allow me to get some handles around some spiritual truth I think that God was trying to communicate to you. And what, what's been distracting to me this week is that my, my dad, as many of you know, has been quite ill, he's struggling with congestive heart failure. Um, he, his, his decline extremely accelerated this week uh, as the week went on. Um, so uh, at middle of the week, we began to hear some significant gurgling in his lungs, even his, in his breathing, and uh, had a chest x-ray done and a meeting with his cardiologist, and um, you know, they just really communicated that there wasn't anything else we could do for him. And so um, at that point, the decision was made to take him off the 24-hour-a-day intravenous diuretic that he was taking because uh, it really wasn't doing any good anymore. He could finally drink and eat what he wanted to because he had been under massive restrictions for a long time, so much so that every little piece of ice meant a lot to him. He said, don't take that cup. I'm not done with that ice yet, <laughs> you know, kind of idea. Uh, we also had to turn off the implanted defibrillator that he has late in the week. Uh, and, and, um, and then as of... Uh, Friday, uh, he, he, really, he hasn't really communicated with anyone since the uh, late afternoon period of, of Friday and um, just in, in, is clearly experiencing some pain and that kind of stuff. We FaceTimed with him last night, and he just, just really looks, looks awful. You know, um, I don't want to be too graphic, but you know, even when you tilt your head to one side or the other in the bed and it just kind of fills up with fluids, you know it's not a very, very good thing. And so it's been very distracting this week. I, I, a lot of people have just expressed their, their thoughts, and I'm really grateful for that. And um, I'm really at peace with the journey, but it doesn't mean it's not distracting. So, you know, so it's things that's just constantly kind of coming into your mind as you go along. And, you know, one of the thoughts that jumped into my mind was my last visit there to visit with my dad was about not quite three weeks ago. I went down and, and got a chance to spend a few days with him. He was still ambulatory. Uh, wasn't walking very fast, but he was on his feet and could move a little bit. So one of the things he always wanted to do when somebody came to visit was have an opportunity to go down to my mom's grave, uh, which is at the National Military Sar uh, Cemetery in Sarasota, a little over an hour away from where they live. And so we, we got into his routine. Uh, we got, I, got, you know, I got him in a car. We went to Publix, you know, which is the grocery stores down there. I don't think we have those around here, do we? But there's Publix, big grocery stores down there. Went in and set type of flowers that we got, you know, and he wanted to make sure he got a sugar-free candy. My previous trips, you know, he'd go in with me. He'd be in the cart. It was just dangerous. It's like bumper cars, you know, but you know, my mother was the same way, but, it, you know, he stayed in the car this time, and I got him some sugar-free candy because he's diabetic, and off we went, and, you know, what struck me was uh, you get down and you cut the flowers. It gets to all this marvelous things, but, you know, my mom's headstone right now, and when my dad dies, they'll turn it around and put the military person facing forward, my dad was in the army, but the front side of it is just, it's very simple headstone. You know, it just says Janet M. Davidson, and it just says um, uh, August 6, 1933 to February 5, 2014. And it just says loving wife and mother, just four words. And now, some of that's the military. They want you to put it in small headstones, all that kind of stuff. But it really strikes me that, that you know, there's a, there's a way in which all of us are living a journey. 
there's going to come a time that we're going to have to, some ways it's going to get boiled down to just a few words with what gets stuck on a headstone. Now, I'm not trying to be depressing, but our days are full of lots of choices every single day. And, and we, we have this God-given privilege to make choices that are going to matter for eternity. And, and so I began to think about the people in our text today and what would be written on their headstones. And perhaps as we look at their lives, we can see some things for our own lives, some choices that we don't want to make and some choices we do want to make as we go forward. And I'd love it if you grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 with me. We're going to be in chapters 18, 19, and 20. I wish I could read all of them to you. I cannot. You're using one of our pew Bibles. It's on page 242 is where we're going to start. We're going to be on 242, 243, and 244. And um, I can't read all of this to you. I'd love to. I'm hoping that you're following along because you'll get a lot more out of our study of 1 Samuel underneath the title of Journey to the Throne where we're pulling out life lessons for ourselves as we look at the journey of real-life people who journeyed in establishing the throne in Israel. And, and part of my thought today, and I'm going to borrow it from, from contemporary culture, but I think this is a truth that's been around for a long time, is that successful people, people whose lives matter, in our case, spiritual people whose lives matter for eternity, are always people who live with the end in mind. And we're going to look at a couple of people today who didn't do that very well. And we're going to look at a couple of people in our text who did that really well. And I, I want us to look at all of those. So there are four primary characters in our text today. There's Saul. Let me just kind of bring the characters into play and then we'll kind of work through these. There's King Saul. This is a guy who was from a family that, that had some stuff. They weren't the poorest of the poor. They weren't the richest of the rich, but they were kind of in the middle. And he was just just a kid, just a young adult emerging out of this family with no significant prospects of really being a person of influence. And God plucks him out and makes him the king of Israel, the very first king of Israel. And we know him as King Saul. We're also going to look at his daughter, Michal. He's, she's actually the youngest daughter. He has two that we know of from this scripture, Mirab and then Michal. Aren't you glad that people didn't name, you didn't get named that or whatever? You might pronounce it Michelle if you wanted to or come close to that. But anyway, Mikael. And, and then, then we have two figures that we've already encountered and going to encounter again throughout our text, which is the book with, are the persons of Jonathan and the persons of David. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. He is, by every human institution, entitled to become the next king of Israel after Saul. Not only is he entitled just because he's a son of Saul, but he's also entitled by his character and by his competence and his experience. God has already used him as a tremendous leader in the, among the people of Israel. He's already brought a great victory to the people through Jonathan. Jonathan has proven himself a guy who can sit in that chair and do the job well. And then we have David, the scrawny little kid, doesn't know enough to be intimidated by anything because he trusts in God and God plucks him out and says, you're the next king of Israel after Saul. Those are the four guys we're going to look at. And the first two, Saul and Michal, they, they present us some pictures that we don't want to follow through. So here's what I would write on Saul's headstone. And I've been, I'm being a bit gratuitous in terms of reaching into our own culture, but I think 
once we get done looking at some stuff, you say you're absolutely justified in your conclusion. You could write on Saul's tombstone, naked and afraid. I think there's a TV show along those lines, right? None of you are going to admit that you've watched it, right? <laughs> but, but, but when you look at Saul, you could say he was naked and afraid. Now, I'm going to justify that from the text in just a minute. If you didn't like that terminology, because, you, you know, whatever, you, you could say, here's a guy who was foolish. He chose that which would not last. Let's look at a couple of things. I, I, when you're looking at this pastor scripture, let's, let's start with verse chap, chapter 18. Again, we're page 242 in our few Bibles. Chapter 18, I want to ver- look at verses 6 through 12. little context. Chapter 17, David kills Goliath. Big, huge victory. Some of the skirmishes and battles continue to go on. God continues to use David. And there's some celebration that's going on. And we pick up the celebration as finally the army is on its way back after all these victories. And, and this is what we read. As David was returning from killing the Philistine, and there were some other things that went on, skirmishes. So he's coming back from the battle, kind of, if you will. The women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul. Singing and dancing with tambourines. That's the way Christina greets me every night. Singing and dancing with tambourines. And with shouts of joy. And with three-stringed instruments. And as they celebrated, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands. But David, his tens of thousands. Saul, now Saul's a king, right? David's just a little upstart that happened to have his... You know, he's, you know, he's, a, he's a, um, a rookie sensation kind of idea at this point. But Saul was furious, and he resented this song. They've credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they've only credited me with the thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul what David jealously from that day forward. Why was Saul jealous? Because David had what Saul could never recover. He had the popularity and the respect that went with being a person who did the right thing the right way in the eyes of God, and it was evident. Saul, Saul had had his victories, but David, in the exercise of his faith, he had done the right things in the right way for the right reasons before God, and he, he had a, 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 an image, a, 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 a reputation, if you will, that Saul could never have, and he was jealous of that because what mattered to him was how he looked in the here and now. Picks up. The next day, an evil, evil spirit from God took control of Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. So he's having a temper tantrum that he can't control. And, and David, and we read about this earlier in the book of Samuel, he, he had been brought in to play the harp to, as a form of music therapy to calm Saul down. You know, so uh, he's probably playing the theme to Beverly Hillbillies or something, you know. But David was playing the harp as usual, but, but Saul was holding a spear. Who holds a spear inside of their house? The most protected, you know, it'd be like President Obama sleeping with a shotgun next to him, you know? It's the most protected house in the world, right, you know? And yet he's, he's carrying a spear around the house with him. But he, and David was playing the harp as you but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. So Saul was afraid of David. Naked and afraid, right? Saul was Afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but he had left from Saul. 
this terminology of that he was afraid of David is going to occur four times, including here in this passage in the, in the chapter to come. Saul was afraid of David. Why is that? David, he, he wasn't afraid that David was going to attack him and destroy him. That's not what he was afraid of. We, we never get the sense that Saul felt threatened. But this is why he was afraid of David. David had the favor of God to take from Saul what God had already decided to take away from Saul. Saul, as we go back through the story, backing up, Saul had been lifted up to become the first king of Israel. He got to a place where he felt like, this is mine now. God gave it to me, but God's out of it. It's mine now. I'm doing this the way that I need to do this. And with that, he had lost the favor of God. And there's one person on the planet who can take it from him, and that's David, because God has already chosen to take it from him and David. And he's afraid of David. So he's afraid. Saul had, he, what, what Saul had in his mind was a dynasty. I, I want to establish the, the kingship, like, you know, of, of, of Saul's family is going to last for generations. It's going to be one of the great, that, that's what was in his mind. He wanted to pass on to his kids what he did not have himself when he was a kid. And that's what's in his mind. And the one threat to that is the person who has the favor of God on it, and he's afraid of him because he has the presence of God with him. So he's afraid. So what about this naked stuff, okay? Well, turn over to chapter 19 with me. I want to look at verses 18 through 24. Bring you up. Saul does not give up on his quest to assassinate David. Throws a spear at him twice here. He throws it at him another occasion, which forces David to flee. There's another time he's trying to get Jonathan and Jonathan's troop to engage with him and, and kill David for him. And finally, at the end of the day, you know, when, when David has escaped and he finds out where he's went, Saul starts sending groups after him. And we read the story this way, picking up in verse 18 of chapter 19. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. Again, Saul had set up a, 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 set up a ring around David's house. And when he came out, he was going to pounce on him and have him killed. And, but David had slipped out, so he he, leaves, he doesn't know where to go, so he goes to Samuel. He said, you know, go, let's go back to where this all started. This is your fault, Samuel. That's not David's attitude, but he, but he goes to Samuel and says, I don't know what to do. So then Samuel, then he and Samuel left, and they stayed at Naoth. Now, this may not necessarily be an individual location. It might be just the fact that this was used like as the encampment. You know, the word can have that idea of encampment. This was the place where the prophets of God, the spiritual leaders of the nation, were, were, were encamped together. And when it was reported to Saul that David was at Naoth and Ramah, Saul sent messengers to seize David. So he sent out excursion parties. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. And when they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and even they began prophesying. So here, here's the imagery, and we, we want to go into, well, what, how is this? They get sucked up in this prophecy, and what are they doing, that kind of stuff. That's, weird. That's where our mind wants to take us. This is what the text is trying to tell us. The Spirit of God is protecting David. He's in the camp with the prophets, 
And every single time somebody shows up to take his life or to take him back to the one who's going to take his life, God converts them over to his side. The Spirit of God is protecting David. We still haven't gotten to the naked part yet. So hang in there. Here we go. So Saul says, forget this. I'm going myself. Verse 22. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. And he came to the large cistern at Siku and looked around and asked, where, where, where are Samuel and David? And they said, well, they're at Naoth and Ramah, someone said. So he went to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God also came on him. <laughs> and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth and Ramah. Here comes the naked part. So Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and he lay naked all that day and all that night. That is why they say, is Saul among the prophets? So, so naked and afraid. Well, we know why Saul's afraid. Here's a person who can take from him what really matters to him most, and that's his own reputation here on the planet, his own status. Now he's going to be naked. Why is that? Now, is it a wild frenzy and he throws off his clothes and all that kind of stuff? Here's the symbolism that God's trying to say. What mattered to Saul was his royal attire, right? And he shows up in the presence of God, and none of that matters, and it gets stripped off. He shows up in the camp, and he's, he's wearing all the stuff that goes with being the guy, but in the presence of God, it all gets stripped away because it just doesn't matter. So he's naked and afraid. We can make choices that will leave us naked and afraid when we stand before the Father. We don't have to, but we can make choices that will leave us naked and afraid when we stand before the Father. You know, the Scripture tells us that, you know, there's been a foundation laid, and every single one of us is building on that foundation. We're either building with wood, wood hay, and stubble, or we're building with gold, silver, and precious stone. And one day... The fire's going to get set to the whole thing, and some of that stuff is just going to go poof. Saul's stuff went poof, right? It just, just stripped away from him. And so if we don't make the right choices, we can be in a place where everything about our lives is just a fodder for the flames of God's testing fire, and we're going to land, our, uh, land up finding ourselves naked and afraid. Don't make those choices. We got the second character I want to get to. That's Mikael. We're going to go back to chapter 19. So, if you remember from chapter 17, when David was thinking about going out and taking on, the, on, on Goliath, he's asking, well, what's going to be done for the guy who, you know, who, 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 who kills this beast? And they said, well, you know what? He's, he's, he's going to not have to pay taxes anymore. Otherwise, he's going to have the same status. His family have the same status as the king's family, all that kind of stuff. And he gets to become the son-in-law of the king. Gets to marry his daughter. So we get around to chapter 18, and Saul's trying to fulfill that pledge, but not for good reason. He's trying to use his daughters as a way to ensnare David. He, he, he wants to eliminate the threat that David is by using his daughters. David acts in humility to start. I am not fit. I don't care what I've done, whatever. I do not come from a place in our society where I belong being the son-in-law of, of the king. 
I don't care how God's chosen to use me. I am not worthy to be the son-in-law of the king. And he refuses to marry the older daughter. And she gets married off to somebody else. Saul figures out that his youngest daughter, Michal, really loves David. She, so he tries again. And this time he creates a covert operation. So he not only offers his daughter, but he sends a bunch of servants to say, hey, listen, the king really likes you. He thinks you're worthy. Da, 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 da. You know what? All you, and you can actually earn that right, if you will, if you'll just go out and do this, this, and this. And this, is, you know, this goes back to Jacob earning, Rachel and Leah, all that kind of stuff, serving, growing the flocks, all that kind of thing. So David doesn't have the, really like the money, if you will, to buy into the royal family. So, and, and so what Saul says is, you can have my youngest daughter as your wife if you will go out and kill 100 of my enemies. If you read the scripture, it's actually a little bit more graphic than that. He said, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take some pieces of their private parts. I want 100 of those. And David goes out with his men. You see the power of teamwork. And they not only get 100, they get 200. And he becomes the son, king's son-in-law. Saul is ready to kill David again. And this is what happens in chapter 19. We're going to pick up, we'll start with verse 9 and read down through verse 17. It'll tell us a little bit about this person, Michal, the daughter of the king, the wife of the future king. So now an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in the palace holding a spear. And David was playing the harp, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, and he escaped. And that night he ran away. And Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michal, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead tomorrow. So just like the spies being lowered down through, from Rahab's things during the time of, the, of, uh, of Joshua, just like Paul's going to get lowered down through a window later from the city of Damascus, she lowers David from the window, and he fled and he escapes. And that's when he goes to Samuel. Then Michal took the household idol, we'll talk about that in a minute, and put it on the bed and placed some goat's hair on its head and covered it with a garment. And when Saul sent agents to seize David, Michal said, he's sick. Now, probably if it had been anybody else in the kingdom, they would have said, who cares? We're taking this guy back. But here are these guys who've been sent by the king, and they're talking to the king's daughter. And, and she's saying, you're not going in there. My husband's sick. You're not going in there. And so they go back empty-handed, and Saul sends them back. Saul sent the agents back to David and said, bring him to me on his bed so I can kill him. And when the messengers arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat's hair on its head. It must have been quite the goat's hair head, you know. It might be the first wig mentioned in the, in the Old Testament. I don't know. Saul asked Michal, why would you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away, and he escaped. And she answered him and said, let me go. Why should I kill you? So here's, the, here's what I had put on Michal's headstone player. She's a player. She, she doesn't want to choose sides. She wants to keep her options open. She's living with a foot in both worlds. She's a player. What, what, what are the options before Mikal? She can be the king's daughter or she can be the next queen. She, she doesn't really mind either one of those options. So she keeps her options open. She lets her husband, David, who is who is her ticket to become the next queen, 
she helps him escape, but then she lies to her father so she can remain in good standing with the king and still be the king's daughter. She's trying to keep her options open. In the same way, she's a part of the people of God who are not supposed to engage in idolatry, but just in case the people around us might ask, oh, we'll just have a household idol to go along with it, which is in the house. She's trying to live her life with a foot in both worlds, and she lands up caught in the middle. Now, some of this comes out later because we know that when David finally was the king and she was the queen and they're having this tremendous celebration as they're bringing the ark of God into the, into the city of Jerusalem for the very first day time, David's dancing before the ark and she is ticked because it's not the right image for her family to be portraying to the nation. It's about image. She's playing both sides off. She wants to either be the king's daughter or the next queen, and she doesn't really want to make a decision. And there's times when probably all of us tend to be players. We kind of, you know, you know I, I, let, I, I believe in the God thing. I want to do enough of that, et cetera. But, you know, just in case... Happiness really isn't found there. Let's just do enough of the world stuff to get ahead so we feel like we're, you know what I mean? We, we, we want to play both sides off against the other. I don't think that's a great epitaph to have written on our headstones. There's a couple of other guys, though, that really are great models for us. Let me hold them up to you this morning. One is Jonathan. Jonathan, as I said before, he's the king's son. He is, by all rights entitled to become the next king. He hasn't done anything to forfeit that right. In fact, he's done nothing but to strengthen his claim to sit on the throne. Right? So, and what does he do? Even though his number one, the only obstacle on the planet to him being the next king is David, he does what's right before God towards David. So you could write on Jonathan's tombstone, committed to the rights. Now, I don't mean the tea party, okay, but committed to what's right. No matter what the personal cost, no matter what it's going to mean for his own fortune, no matter what it's going to mean for his family and liturgy, he is going to make the right choices before God. You could see this, it's just the fingerprints of this are all over the text, right? But, but in chapter 18, 19, and 20, and etc., and we're going to see it down the road, but let's just look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 19. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. Saul's had enough of this throwing spears and that kind of stuff. He's not trying to use the Philistines anymore to kill David like he was doing earlier. He's not saying, you know what, we're just going to assassinate this guy. Take your best men, go get him. I want him gone, you know? The Godfather kind of effect, right? But Saul's son, Jonathan, liked David very much. So he told David, My father Samuel intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out, I'll stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. And when I see what he says, I will tell you. So Jonathan spoke well of the only person on the planet who could take his throne away from him, Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. 
He said to him, the king should not sin against the servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it. You rejoiced. So, so why would you sin against the innocent blood by killing David for no reason? And Saul listened to Jonathan, at least for a little while. Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. Jonathan has this moment where he could do away with the only obstacle to his real future. And he refuses to do what's wrong in the eyes of God. David's innocent. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything but serve the cause of God. He's been anointed by God to be the next king. And Jonathan is committed to doing what's right, no matter what the personal cost. You know what? You could, you could put that on my headstone. And I hope I would be worthy of it. Committed to what was right, no matter what the personal cost. There's one more for person in our, our, our story, and that's David, the next king of Israel. We're going to see him in a number of chapters, and so I'm not going to... But here, here's, here's what I want for you to see in David's life. Here's a guy, just tending sheep. God anoints him as the next king of Israel. He uses them to, to kill the arch enemy of Israel, Goliath, lead to a huge victory, constantly uses them over and over and over again to bring victory to the people of Israel. Then he is chased and accused as being a traitor to the nation and to the king over and over again. But in the midst of all of that, he's just humble and faithful to God in the midst of his adversity. We're going to see in later chapters, he, he never once, even though he has the opportunity, he never once lifts his hands to strike the Lord's anointed in terms of Saul. He simply just lived with God's spirit, served the people of God, was used to bring victories, and yet remained humble before God. You can look at a lot of passages, maybe chapter 18, verses 17 through 30 is a great passage to look at. We've looked at some, some pieces of that earlier with uh, his marriage to, to Michal and the fact that he goes out with his men and attacks the Philistines to, to win the right to marry the, the, the next queen, if you will. But in the midst of all of that, there's even a moment when he stands before Jonathan in chapter 20, and he says, listen, I don't know why your father's chasing me, but if I've done anything wrong, I'll put my head on the block right now, and you go ahead and take my life. And he just leaves it all in the hands of God, even though he doesn't understand what's going on. That's why he goes to Sam and says, I don't know what I did. But he leaves it all in the hands of God, and he simply just humbly and faithfully tries to walk with God, even in the midst of life-defying <laughs> adversity. You could write that on my tombstone as well. You know, today lies within our power because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the power to make the choices where naked and afraid won't belong on our tombstone. Where a player 
doesn't belong on our tombstone. But somebody who was committed to what's right and humble and faithful in all circumstances, we can make the choices to be those people. What is it going to take? Let me suggest to you that there are just three, maybe just three simple fundamental commitments you can make. One is to be a person of faith. Choose to believe that God is in Jesus Christ. Be a person of faith. Two, trust. No matter what's going on in your life, some of you right now are enjoying some of the best moments of your journey. Others of you are struggling with some of the most difficult moments of your journey. Trust God in the moment and let him take care of the future. And always, always do what's righteous in the eyes of God. And if we'll do those things, if we'll be people of faith, people who trust, people who do what's righteous, the things that will go on our tombstone will be worthy of the same marvelous things that we've seen God do in the scriptures. Let's pray together. God, it has been a distracting week. One that's caused me to think a lot about the end of my parents' journey. Father, one that's forced me and now through what I've just inflicted on the people here this morning, one that caused us to think about our own end. God, we seek to be wise enough to live with the end in mind. What happens when our four score and 20 years here is over. God, allow us to be people of faith, people who trust, and people who always do what's right. We pray it in Jesus' name.